Hey fam, we are quickly approaching the arrival of the Showcase of the Immortals to MetLife Stadium. So that means the fourth wall WrestleCast is throwing a party. The fourth wall team will be hosting the first ever fourth wall WrestleMania tailgate event with proceeds benefiting the Ronald McDonald House Charities on Sunday, April 7th from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. For the cost of only $5, your entry fee will benefit the Ronald McDonald House Charities and includes all-you-can-eat food, sodas, beer, and other refreshments, as well as access to fun games like WWF Old School Trivia, the Fourth Wall Cornhole Tournament Extravaganza. But that's not all. There's going to be raffles and prizes and music and special guests and so much more. For more information and details, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at FourthWallCast or go to Patreon.com slash FourthWallWrestleCast. We will be streaming live from the tailgate on our Twitter page. So if you're not going to WrestleMania, you can still join the party. Once again... Come join the 4th Wall fam at the WrestleMania tailgate party on April 7th at MetLife Stadium from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with proceeds benefiting the Ronald McDonald House Charities. So come be a part of the biggest draw for the critics, the marks, the casual, and the hardcore. Welcome to Kayfabe Classics. Today we're talking about WrestleMania 10. Um, WrestleMania 10. Tell you right, right now, two of the greatest matches in WWF's or WWE's history were on this card. But man, outside of those two matches, this card was an absolute fucking disaster. Disaster of all disasters. Some of the stupidest, shittiest booking in the promotions history. I really have a belief, like from like WrestleMania nine in nineteen ninety three until WrestleMania twelve in nineteen ninety six. Vince McMahon couldn't get out of his own fucking way. He didn't even know how to use Raw properly yet. He had to like watch Eric Bischoff on Nitro to learn how to use Raw properly. Anyway. Before again, a whole nother tangent about that. Let's just stick to WrestleMania 10. So WrestleMania 10 took place from the Garden in 1994. Uh, it was the second WrestleMania to take place in the Garden. The uh, second in the New York tri-state area, in the New York City tri-state area. Uh, the crowd, classic Garden crowd, on despite the shitty booking, on fire the whole time. Um, so we're gonna get right um, a couple things before we even go into it. Uh, Vince starts the show and he's in all his glory. It's his tenth WrestleMania. His whole idea worked. He's pumped up. He's still not acknowledged as the owner of the promotion yet. He's still acknowledged as a commentator. Him and Jerry Lawler are the commentators this WrestleMania. Vince is fucking terrible at this mania. Fucking terrible. He's one of the worst commentators in the history of pro wrestling, and this might be. Him at the height of his shit in commentary because it was fucking awful. 
overselling everything, overselling the fact that like watch we're watching WrestleMania. It's like you can only see this at WrestleMania. Well, no shit, Vince. Everybody bought WrestleMania, so they know they can only see it at WrestleMania. What the fuck are you selling? You're selling the event as it's going on. You're supposed to sell the event before it goes on, you fucking dipshit. Anyways, so Vince goes back to commentary. Um and little Richard sings America the Beautiful, and it is the most little Richard America the Beautiful ever. It is little Richard as fuck. We get the gospel choirs, we get those other eh, noises. He goes, oh, noises that little Richard did before Michael Jackson did. So cool rendition. The musician and me enjoyed it. Let's talk about some overall main points this mania. This is the first WrestleMania without Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan had been in every single WrestleMania at this point, and I believe, with the exception of WrestleMania 4, yes, he was in the main event of every single WrestleMania up to this point. This is also the last in-ring pay-per-view appearance for WrestleMania legend Randy Savage. This was not one of his legendary WrestleMania moments, which we will get into later, but also a very notable thing. He would uh, serve as an on-screen personality for the rest of his time in WWF before departing for WCW. Um, This this event was, despite shitty booking, the two best WrestleMania moments for the Hart brothers, Brett and Owen. Without a doubt, we'll get into that throughout the night. Um, it was HBK, Shawn Michaels, his first WrestleMania classic, as far as I'm concerned. We'll get into that. And it was the definite start of a new era in WWF's programming. Hogan was gone. Savage was on his way out. Warrior was in exile doing weird shit somewhere. So a, a huge, uh, a huge turning point for the company here. Also of note, uh, this WrestleMania does take place within The Undertaker's streak, but it is one of the two WrestleManias that The Undertaker did not appear at during his streak, the other being WrestleMania 2000. Uh, Taker would come back to television at SummerSlam of that year to take on the fake Undertaker in the famous Undertaker versus Undertaker storyline. He would then beat Yokozuna and end that feud. And we'll talk about that later on, too, as we talk about Yokozuna tonight. Uh, Up until this point, Taker had defeated Superfly Snuka at WrestleMania 7, Jake the Snake Roberts at WrestleMania 8, and Giant Gonzalez at WrestleMania 9. Um, They definitely could have used him at WrestleMania 10. It was a shame he couldn't go for this one. So WrestleMania opens up the main... The, one of the main matches of the night, it's Bret Hart versus Owen Hart, brother versus brother. Bret, of course, was in the title match later that night, too. So he had his first match of the night first, and he had won a coin toss or or he had, he had won a coin toss to get the second WWF championship match that night. So let's talk about Bret Owen. There's not much that could be said about this match that hasn't been said before. You are taking two guys who grew up with each other, who grew up in a wrestling family. All their brothers wrestled. Their dad wrestled. Their dad ran a super successful promotion in Western Canada. They were surrounded by great NWA wrestlers their whole lives. These guys went in the rain and put on a clinic, a technical masterpiece. The storytelling was top notch. They did multiple, multiple near falls. Uh, the facial expressions and just their general attitudes of the wrestlers in general. Owen Hart, 
just your classic quintessential jealous heel he played it perfectly this was the real beginning of the of the rise of Owen Hart and it's unfortunately a rise we never got to see culminate with the world title win um, due to his tragic death but man this was Owen's finest night in WWE he goes out he shocks everybody by beating Brett he cuts a fire promo backstage afterwards even at the end of the night, he shows up just to do just enough to, to, to ruin Brett's little victory celebration. A classic evening for the Rocket. Um, Owen would go on to, to I believe, uh, win the Cane of the Rain in 1994 and become the Cane of Hearts. Another great Owen Hart gimmick. I I love Owen. He's, he, was, he was so much better than Brett on the mic. Not quite as good as Brett in the rain, but he could definitely hold his own. This was the match that, you know, really made you realize that Owen Hart was going to be a major player. Um, Brett played the classy face in distress to a T. He he was always a professional when it came to that. And just like I said, there's not much that can't be said that has been said already when it comes to this Brett Owen match. So a great way to open Mania. You got to see this match and you got to be in the crowd. You're like, yeah, this is going to be a fucking awesome night of wrestling. And then Cy Sperling of the Hair Club for Men shows up. <laughs> the special, the famous people at this Mania, quite the smorgasbord, and we will keep going into and, and introducing them as then I go through the card. So size Sperling, and for those of you old enough, there was this thing called the Hair Club for Men. Um, it's where uh, it was a place where bald fucks like Bones and Smarky could go and uh, try to get hair again. So Sperling comes out and introduces the famous Howard Finkel, and Howard Finkel is not bald. And that is the basis of how that went down. So Sperling is now ringside for the second match of the evening. Bam Bam Bigelow and Luna Vachon, New Jersey's own Bam Bam Bigelow, versus the ferocious duo of Doink and Dink. First, I love Doink. Doink is one of my favorite comedy gimmicks ever. It was, I, I liked heel Doink more than face Doink, and this was face Doink. Um, he had turned in 1993, turned uh, face at some angle to do it, Bobby Heenan on Raw. I can't remember specifics right now, but he was a really good comedy character. Um, this was the second Doink at this point. This is interesting, some backstage stuff that went on between Bam Bam and Doink. Uh, the original Doink was played by uh, Matt Osborne, more commonly known as Matt Bourne, who was actually a wrestler. He wrestled at the first WrestleMania. And while he while he was feuding with Bam Bam, and it was a lengthy feud that, that all culminated and blew off at this WrestleMania, while he was feuding, Bam Bam and and Osborne must have had some beef and Bam Bam actually narked on on Osborne for smoky weed backstage and it got him fired. So insert Ray Licamelli, doink number two, but not as good as doink number one. And you know, it all kind of showed in this match because this match was uh, very, very awkward. Dink was unquestionably the highlight of the match. Dink was played by a um, a midget wrestler named Claude Giroux, and not the same Claude Giroux that plays for the Flyers now, 
But Claude Giroux, the short man who was a very experienced in the industry, was not actually. Just about all the uh, midget wrestlers that the WWE had in the 80s and the 90s when that was popular and I guess still politically correct. Um, they all had experience. They all knew how to work in the ring. It wasn't just, you know, a bunch of little people thrown in there for big people to throw around. Um, another. So um think was hilarious. He was especially hilarious with Nuna. The match itself was nothing great to write home about, and it was not one of Bam Bam's finest matches. And Bam Bam was a good wrestler, and this match did not do him justice at all. Uh, him and Luna got the win. There was a beyond awkward post-match segment where Bam Bam and Luna go to hit a slash on Dink, and he moves out of Bam Bam's way, but Luna hits him. I think he was supposed to move out of Luna's way, too, and Bam Bam, like, apparently is trying to pull Dink into the from going out of the rain. And for some reason, he can't pull Dink, which makes no sense whatsoever because he just went really awkward. It's, I always think when those awkward segments, like with Vince sitting right there, like, what the fuck is Vince thinking when he's watching this unfold? <laughs> is he just sitting there, like, like fuming on the inside and just like covering it up with his stupid over the top commentary? I, always wonder what he thought in these situations. If I ever meet Vince McMahon, that's the first question I'm going to ask him. How hard was it to call the matches that you booked? And then when they fucked up, like, was it, did he want to just get up there and slap the shit out of all of them? Because I would have slapped the shit out of everybody but Dink in this match. Vince, he kind of had the let's get it over with tone in his voice, but he always held that pretty well. Um, Anyway, so that ends, and we go to stupid gimmick number two of the night, and that was fake President Bill Clinton, who was never mentioned by name. He was just the president or the commander-in-chief, I believe they referred to him as the whole time. All I can say is this fake Bill Clinton. Why, Vince? Why? Um, I will give Vince a little bit of credit, actually. Um when I was a little kid, that's pretty good. Bill Clinton impersonator. He had me fooled for like until I was probably like twelve, and I watched WrestleMania setting. I'm like, that's not fucking Bill Clinton. What the hell? So either way, why Vince? Why? Why do we need a fake Bill Clinton segment at WrestleMania? Anyway, let's talk about Crush versus Savage in the in the in another awkward gimmick match. Falls count anywhere, but not your standard falls count anywhere. This was. You pin your opponent. You had to pin him outside the ring, I guess. And it was never clearly explained. And then your opponent had 60 seconds to get in the ring. So the match starts with Crush coming out and attacking Savage as he comes down the ramp. And wait, I'm sorry, other way around. Savage attacking Crush as he comes down the ramp. But Crush winds up getting a hold of him, kicking his ass, pinning him. And Savage gets back before the 60 count. And that's how you win this match. You had to pin your opponent outside the ring and get back in. Of all the great Randy Savage matches, you know, you would have loved to have seen something different for his WrestleMania send-off. Um, WrestleMania 3, he had a classic with Ricky Steamboat. WrestleMania 8, he had a classic with Ric Flair. WrestleMania 7, a classic with Warrior. WrestleMania 5, a classic with Hogan. And then there's this dud. He was even... He even called WrestleMania 9, which was the best part of the worst WrestleMania ever. This this dud. Dud of a match. So much more could have been done. There could have been more with weapons. There could have been more 
you know, extreme rules. And I get it. In 1994, extreme rules was still kind of a new thing. ECW was in its infancy and actually growing those styles of matches in America. But, you know, WWF really could have, like, been at the foreground of something with this one. They could have taken this match and ran with it and, you know, made it a hardcore classic, much like the Foley Rock match from the 99 Rumble. Um, you didn't get that here. You got an awkward match with two guys that weren't really sure what they were supposed to be doing. And the match ended with Crush pinning Savage under in, in the depths of the garden somewhere and then attempting to hang him from some sort of bungee cable or something or other. Bones is trying to tell me what it is. Savage was trying to hang Crush by a pulley system from like a... Oh, what did I say? You said Crush was trying to pin... Oh, Savage. I'm sorry. Savage was trying to hang... Yeah. Savage was trying to hang Crush. Okay, I thought and he then, was making... And then it, it, it was botched because he tried to hang him upside down, but as Savage was running away, Crush fell from, from whatever he was right. being Crush just from. fell, mm-hmm. and Savage probably just looked at it and said, fuck this, and went back to the ring and got his victory. And yeah, it was nice. I mean, luckily for you know Vince McMahon in this situation, Randy Savage was Randy Savage, and Randy Savage could walk into any arena and be over, and that's just all there is to it. He could walk into an arena, pick his nose, and grab his ass, and he'd be fucking over. That's how good the fucking Macho Man was. So, unfortunately for a guy who was, you know, in my opinion, the original Mister WrestleMania, be long before Shawn Michaels officially earned that title, this was not a fitting send off to his. Big match in ring career. Um, very, very awkward. Another WrestleMania debut happened this year, and it was the Fan Fest, which, of course, is the precursor to Access. Um, you know, it, 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 was a, it was very um, kid oriented. You know, a lot of things like sumo wrestlings and there's video games all around. So definitely a good first attempt. And it's definitely grown into something. One of the biggest things of WrestleMania weekend. So I thought it'd be cool to point that out. Next match, we have a couple. uh, We have a very interesting competitor. One Alundra Blaze known the rest of the world over as Medusa. She was the WWF women's champion. Now, of course, when she signed with WWF, she had she owned the ring name Medusa and Vince was not cool with that. So he made her change her name, which she did. And Alundra Blaze was, you know, definitely a four, a four forefather or foremother, I guess would make more sense in the, uh, in the women's evolution. Cause she was a very good in rain worker and she worked with Leilani Kai and his match who was not as good of an in rain worker and won the match as she should have. Um, but she's definitely a groundbreaker to the, to the women's evolution. We uh, see today. I think, you know, I mean, this match was nothing to write home about, you know, but it's, and it's definitely nothing compared to what we get out of women like Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair and Asuka and Ronda Rousey. But it was definitely better than some than the Kelly Kelly years and the Bella years. It was a short match. It didn't need to be long. It probably couldn't be long. And it got the job done. And believe it or not, it was probably one of the more logically booked moments of the night at WrestleMania 10. Let's move on to our next special guest appearance. And I have to bring this up because it's Burt Reynolds and Burt Reynolds is a fucking G. Uh, he was backstage just uh, hamming it up with uh, Rhonda Shear, who was the host of USA Up All Night, which I think I remember watching. I always thought Gilbert Godfrey was the host of that. 
but I, I think I vaguely remember Rhonda too. Either way, Burt Reynolds is a G, and we should all bask in his uh, eternal glory. Anyways, next match on the card, the tag team title match. The titles were held by the Quebecers, yet another stereotypical French-Canadian tag team that are booked to be just arrogant doofuses. In this case, they were mounted police arrogant doofuses. This tag team evolved out of Jacques Rougeau's Mountie character, and um, he was joined by the man we now know as uh, PCO, who went as uh, uh, Quebecer Pierre during this time. Quebecers were a good tag team. They they worked well in the ring together. They did not suck, and honestly, they deserved to win this match clean. Why men on a mission, Mabel and Mo, who were, if you can remember back that far, they were a gimmick of guys who were tough in the rain, but they wanted to make a change in the streets. Their big nets were basically them walking around the hood talking about how they're going to make a positive change. And that was the gimmick of their team. Uh, Mabel, of course, was an awful wrestler. Vince saw some saw gold in him for some reason, and I'll never figure out why. He was garbage at WrestleMania 10. He was garbage when he won the King of the Ring. He was garbage when he lost to Diesel at SummerSlam 95. He was garbage when he was Viscera. He was just garbage. May he rest in peace. Anyway, the man on a mission won this match on a countout. Johnny Polo, a.k.a. Raven, was the manager of the Quebecers, and he basically pulled them out of the rain and had them take a count out to retain the titles. And then men on a mission celebrate in the rain with the titles, even though they didn't win the titles and they had no business beating the Quebecers because the Quebecers were a much better team than they were. Who was thinking of this shit? Who thinks this is a good idea? This is as boneheaded as as the SummerSlam 93 bookie we're going to get into a few minutes with uh, Lex Luger because that's the next match coming up. Um, I don't know what the hell Vince was thinking. He apparently thought it was another WrestleMania moment because that's what he exclaimed on commentary. And in fact, it wasn't. And you are, in fact, the worst commentator ever, Vince McMahon. Thank goodness we do not have to hear your voice on television anymore. Anyway, once Burt Reynolds got done with Ronda Shear, she got to walk to the ring with Donnie Wahlberg from the new Kids on the Block. And uh, all I wanted to see was more Burt Reynolds because Donnie Wahlberg was out there sounding like a broke-ass John Cena introducing the WWF Championship match. The first of two WWF Championship matches in the night because of some really stupid, shitty booking at that year's Royal Rumble where for some reason we just decided to have Lex Luger and Bret Hart both win and then not have them face each other at WrestleMania because that makes all the fucking sense in the world. Lex Luger came into this match with a stupid fucking gimmick that he had to deal with during his during his time as a face in WWF, yet he still got over because Lex was in the prime of his career at this point. He was in the best shape of his life. He was the best he ever was as an in-ring performer and WWF and Vince just botched the whole fucking thing. This could have been the perfect moment to set up Lex and Brett last match, WrestleMania 10. Instead, Luger comes in, body slams Yokozuna, does the thing again, does what everybody wants to see him do. 
And then because he touched Mr. Perfect and they wanted to do a Luger Perfect feud, which could have been pushed off to SummerSlam or Survivor Series. There's no need that that is start that night. And then Perfect was hurt anyway, so it didn't, I don't understand why we had to rush this feud. You could have Luger win because you could easily convince me that he could dominate Yokozuna because of his size, yet he didn't. Mind, mind blown. Mind boggling. Bullshit chants from the audience. Um, embarrassing moment, I think, in booking for, for Vince in WWF's history. Embarrassing. The whole Lex Luger thing in general. Because after this match, Lex basically went to the mid card. And then after SummerSlam 95, about a year and a half later, he basically just walked out on WWF, went back to WCW. And can you blame him? Can you blame him? We pushed Kevin Nash to the top of the card over a super hot Lex Luger. Nash was over, don't get me wrong, but he wasn't the way Luger was. I mean, when Luger showed up on the Intrepid in the summer of 93 and body slammed Yoko, that that image still resonates in my head as one of the most badass images in the history of WWE. And then they made that and actually made it corny with the stupid-ass Lex Express, which... Which 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 um took us to SummerSlam '93, where he actually had to face Yoko and won by countout because for some odd reason when he knocked Yokozuna out of the ring, he didn't try to throw him back in. How is that believable? I don't know what Vince didn't see in Lex to put the strap on him. I don't. I don't think we'll ever know. And it was definitely a missed opportunity because I really think Lex Luger could have carried that Hulk Hogan place for a while in WWF if he was booked correctly. Let's move on to our next match, which was a squash match that I forgot was even on this card until I saw it when I just watched it again to get my thoughts together before talking about it. Earthquake took on Adam Bomb, who was being managed by Harvey fucking Whippleman. The biggest dweeb in the history of pro wrestling. So this made this match just made me realize how much could have been done with Earthquake because he was a pretty athletic dude. Uh, he did not have the look whatsoever, and I'm sure that's what really hurt him in WWF in the long run. He did get some uh, nice time feuding with Hogan, but he never would have made it as a face in WWF. Vince would have never gotten behind that. Um, after this, uh, after this uh, match against Adam Bomb, he went into a feud with Yokozuna. That, if listeners remember, ended up with them having a sumo match on Raw. That Earthquake won because, believe it or not, John Tenta, the man who portrayed Earthquake, was a sumo wrestler. He had a career in sumo, whereas Yokozuna, who was portrayed by Rodney Inouye of the Inouye family, never sumoed. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, John Tenta did win the sumo match, though, so it was good for him. After this match, I have to talk about how this card, the card peaked after this match for about a half hour. Um, we had the top, the big high moment with Brett, Brett and Owen. And at this point, we're like down in the depths of shittiest wrestling. We're back to WrestleMania 9 in terms of shittiest WrestleMania territory ever. But things started to turn around thanks to one Jim Cornette who cut a fucking fire promo on Bret Hart for Yokozuna leading up to their match, which was going to close out tonight. 
for those of you not familiar with Jim Cornette or who might be too young to know who Jim Cornette was in his prime, he was the Paul Heyman of his day in WWF. He was an epic heel manager who cut the most vicious fire promos and he carried that fucking tennis racket and he didn't just do it in WWF. He did it in, in mid South. He did it all over the country and he's still in the industry too. Just not, not as uh, prominent anymore. And he's been doing it for years. One of the all time great wrestling managers, Jim fucking Cornette. If there's anything you need to watch from this WrestleMania, it is the promo. He fucking cuts maybe the turning point of the pay-per-view because after that, that we have one of the greatest matches in the history of professional wrestling, maybe the greatest wrestling match to ever take place at Madison square garden. And that is the ladder match for the intercontinental championship between Shawn Michaels and razor Ramon. Let's talk about how this started. It started in 1993 when Sean was stripped of the title for not defending it enough. Um, the rumor is backstage that Sean didn't want to lose the title and thus just didn't, would not defend it. This is at the uh, height of arrogant douchebag Shawn Michaels. You know, I mean, he was being anointed as the next big thing. He was continually getting pushed to bigger and bigger heights. And he was very fucking full of himself. He was a big, giant piece of shit during this time. So after he stripped of the title, Razor Ramon won a battle royal by last eliminating Rick Martel to become the Intercontinental Champion. Um, Razor, of course, made cut cut his teeth in the AWA, just like Sean, uh, wrestling as a tag team with Mr. Perfect. And they were a very popular tag. Mr. Perfect basically taught him how to wrestle up. Actually, there's a good... There's a good article on ProWrestlingStories.com this week, when I'm a, which I'm a big fan of that site, that talks about, uh, or Razor, Scott Hall, talks about the influence that Kurt Hennig got on his career and how he basically taught him the, the, the industry. Because when Scott Hall started, he was rough. I mean, he went from nothing to something, and he did it on the fly. So much props to, to him. You know, he's a fighter. We all know that. You know, he's overcome... A lot of things, including his own personal demons. But uh, this match was uh, his finest hour and probably his whole career. Much like Brett Owen, what what can be said about the match that hasn't been said already? Uh, the latter match was still a new concept in the WWF. Um, it had only been tried out on house shows up to that point. Uh, Sean had been in in one with Brett about two years prior. That was the first one in WWF. Um, the, the idea of the ladder match actually started in Brett's father's territory, Stampede Wrestling, back in, I believe, the 70s. Um, and Brett had participated in a few before he came to WWF in the mid-80s. But this was the first time that a ladder match was showcased on TV, let alone WrestleMania. Um, and it was a lot different from today's ladder matches. It had one ladder and the ladder looked like they just took it from like a storeroom back in the garden somewhere. Not one of these heavy duty ladders that we see today. The ladder barely made it through the match, actually. So that was the first thing. And Sean and Razor, they'd been rehearsing around. 
they've been rehearsing on house shows, you know, leading up to the match. So some fans have gotten to see a sneak preview already, but I don't think anybody in the audience knew what they were in store for once these guys went out there. This was a clinic, an absolute wrestling clinic. Um, the in-ring storytelling, the back and forth, of course, the use of the ladder, uh, the pacing of the match was fantastic. Uh, it might have been a little too well-paced because they had to cut a 10-man tag match, you know, because I think of the length of this match. Uh, the perseverance of Razor, who was the face, the cockiness and the an arrogance of Michaels, who was basically just being himself out there. Hence, his character worked so well. And how the ending of the match, Michael's getting his leg caught in a rope, and that was the difference because they were going back and forth, up and down the ladder, hitting each other with the ladder, you know, just going just all out. It was ruthless. The only thing this match missed was a little bit of color. Um, there's color wasn't allowed in WWE, and I say color, I mean blood wasn't allowed in WWE in 1994. It's just something you didn't see happen. But that's need nitpicking. This match was unbelievable. The place was on fire when Razor grabbed those belts and fell down to the floor. Shawn livid. Um, a very different Shawn Michaels in ring then, too. He was still developing that classic Shawn Michaels moveset, we know. Um, there was no sweet chin music yet. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't even think Shawn Michaels had a finisher. I couldn't think what his finisher might have been. Before Sweet Chin Music Bones, do you know what Shawn Michaels' finisher was before before Sweet Chin Music? Did he have one? Was it the elbow drop? That's a real good question. I don't remember any other finisher besides the the super kick. Yeah, so, so I don't even know. I think he may have attempted a few different ones. I feel like the figure four may have been he may have tried a submission at one point before the super kick. Okay. Okay, that sound that might be right, but but he is known for yeah, I, sweet chin music. He's over sweet chin music, and that was not a thing yet. Uh, there's a couple other interesting tidbits that I like to point on this match. One, as I was watching this match, all I could say to myself was, "Man, I wish Jr. and King were calling this match and not Vincent King." Uh, two, another thing: this was Kevin Nash's first WrestleMania appearance, and oddly enough, he would go on and win the Intercontinental Title not much longer. After this match on Monday Night Raw and hold it till SummerSlam where Razor would beat him again. And that would start the dissension eventually between uh, Sean and Diesel, which would lead to their match at WrestleMania 11, where uh, Diesel retained that uh, w his WWF championship. Um, like I said, I, I could go and sit here and talk all day about how great this match is. I could talk about how this was Shawn Michaels' first true WrestleMania moment. Um, he had already had plenty of great matches in WWE. Um, a couple I can one of know his intercontinental title match with Marty Jannetty. I believe that was at the 1991 rumble. So, Oh no, night. No, sorry. That was the 1993 rumble. Cause it was after the, uh, the heel turn. So, but this is his first WrestleMania moment. We know Shawn Michaels is known for having great WrestleMania matches. Five stars, easily five stars, easily the match that kind of saved and saved this event, because at this point, you know, you had Brett Owen, which, of course, was a classic, but the life had really been sucked out of this WrestleMania post Brett Owen. And 
these guys saved the crowd. They saved the energy. The energy carried over into the next match, which was the main event, Brett versus Yoko for the world title. Um, I got to talk about <laughs> the video packages leading up to this to this match. These 90s WWF video packages are the most 90s wrestling things ever with the most 90s Jim Johnston music like put to the background, like all synthesized and all like I, I kind of call it computer metal because I really don't have another term for it. But there was a video package for Brett and Yoko. And the packages themselves were good. WWF has always put together great highlight packages. Um, Watching Brett's, I'm just sitting there and going like, fuck, man. Brett had so many great fucking matches in WWF. Um, Mr. Perfect, SummerSlam 91. Piper, WrestleMania 8. British Bulldog, SummerSlam 92. Um, Later on, a couple years... um, Brett Shawn Michaels at, at WrestleMania 12, the two Stone Cold matches. Bret Hart is the is hands down the greatest in-ring worker in the history of professional wrestling. He's the greatest technical wrestler in the history of professional wrestling. He could make anybody look like a million dollars but i'll say one thing i am for one very very good reason the best there is the best there was and the best there ever will be and bret hart really got gypped on his wrestlemania moment because of how he was booked to be the top face of wwf let's take it back Let's take it back to WrestleMania 8 in 1992. He beats Piper for the Intercontinental title. Kind of like kind of the start of his rise of a, as a singles wrestler. He would actually go, he would lose the Intercontinental title to the British Bulldog at SummerSlam that year. And and once again, another f- classic. And then actually he would beat Ric Flair for the WWF championship about a month or so later. And he held the WWF championship and and this was always rumor, and I it's a pretty strong rumor, so I have no problem talking about it like it's real. It should have been Brett Hogan at WrestleMania 9, and that should have been the passing of the torch. Hogan wouldn't do the job to Brett at WrestleMania. We had it translated into arguably the worst WrestleMania of all time, WrestleMania 9. An absolutely terrible card from top to bottom. Um, so instead of beating the guy who used to be the big guy, he has to wait a year, and he goes against Yokozuna, who is also a relative newcomer. And Yokozuna was a monster heel, and he was a good wrestler. He knew how to work his size well. He was a dominant champion for, for almost a year. Uh, he had spent the better part of a year holding the WWF championship, I should say. Um, he was not the guy that should have been in this spot putting Brett over. If Hogan wasn't going to do the job of WrestleMania 9, Luger should have Luger should have beaten Yoko because that was easy to conceive for the fans. And then Brett out wrestling Luger is also very easy to conceive for the fans. And Brett could win the title at WrestleMania 10. And I tell you what, beating Luger would have been so much more of a WrestleMania moment than beating Yoko. Beating Hogan would have been the best WrestleMania moment for Brett. But uh, I feel like Vince really did him dirty by not putting his foot down with Hogan at WrestleMania 9. And because of that, 
we have to go through this strain of shit booking that leads us to WrestleMania 10. If you really think about it, WrestleMania's booking woes of the mid-90s, it all starts with that Hulk not wanting to put Brett over. If Hulk puts Brett over, things might have went a lot differently for WWF during those mid-90s years before Sean made it to the top of the card. And you really saw it at this WrestleMania. You saw it with this main event. Um, kudos to Brett, who really kept the crowd into it because he was such a great wrestler. And he was over. The fans loved him. Uh, Roddy Piper being the guest referee in this match, coming back after a year and a half long absence. Um, that was really big for the crowd. I believe he was an unannounced guest, too. I don't think he was uh, promoted to appear. So that got the crowd hot, which is really important because you could have really lost the crowd after that ladder match because that ladder match was something else that exhausted the audience. But Brett did it well, and they kept the match short and sweet. I would have rather seen a long Brett and Luger match, but I'm done bitching about that. <laughs> um, very impressive display for each of them, especially also considering they both wrestled main event caliber matches already that night. A couple things I want to uh, point out. Yoko could really milk two counts, man. He waited till the very, very, very last second. And despite, you know... The name not being quite big, Yokozuna was somebody everybody in the audience wanted to lose because he was that good of a heel. So Brett got at least the pop he deserved. Could have been better. You know, it could have been like a Warrior Hogan moment, but with a, a wrestler that actually deserved it. And we didn't get it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on from it. I digress. I'm done bitching. I was a big Bret Hart fan when I was a kid. <laughs> Uh, Yokozuna, this was the end of his run at the top of the card. He fell, did a lot with the tag teams, went on to tag with Crush for a bit. Um, about a year or so later, he formed a team with Owen Hart, and um, they actually won the tag team titles. He uh, finished up his feud with The Undertaker, and The Undertaker is who basically wrote him off TV for a bit. And he actually came back bigger, which is unbelievable to imagine. But unfortunately, he wasn't better. Um, putting on that weight was really the the, the death the death blow to Yokozuna's career in WWF because he couldn't move like he used to afterwards. Um, I also want to talk about a cool moment that happened after Brett won the match. Uh, Randy Savage coming out to raise Brett's hand emphatically after he won the title. That was really cool to see. It's a shame we never got to see Brett Hart versus Randy Savage main event of WrestleMania. Probably one of the biggest shames in pro wrestling history. That could have been... if. If Vince still had faith in Randy, which for some reason he didn't anymore, that could have been your main event at WrestleMania 11 rather than what was a rushed, rushed elevation for Kevin Nash and Shawn Michaels, as far as I'm concerned. Shawn wasn't mature enough, and and Kevin was still too green at that point. Brett and Randy would have brought the house down at WrestleMania 11, and then you could have had – and I know by that time, Randy Savage, I believe, was already out the door of WWF. I think his last appearance was at the night – was was later on in 1994. But if you put Bret Hart in front of Randy Savage's face and big money, he probably would have stuck around. Once again, don't know what goes on in Vince McMahon's head. Mania ends, like I said earlier, with Owen staring Brett down from the entrance ramp. This foreshadowed their five-star steel cage match at SummerSlam that later that year. 
which was definitely even better than their WrestleMania 10 match. I know their WrestleMania 10 match is talked about more Brett and Owen, but if you go watch their steel cage match from SummerSlam, Jim, the anvil Neidhart was in Owens corner. He inserted himself into the feud at that point, making his return to WWF. One of the greatest wrestling matches in the history of, of the sport. Um, if I can leave you with anything, it's telling you to go watch that. Go watch the culmination of the Brett Owen feud. One of the best, well done feuds in WWF. It's about the only thing they were booking right during this time because they just let Brett and Owen do what they do best. And that was just, you know, be brothers. Brothers have natural chemistry. And obviously, Vince, and Vince didn't stand in the way of that like he did other things. All right, fam. And that just about wraps up our WrestleMania 10 edition of Kayfabe Classics. Overall, the card gets a C plus, and that C plus is because it is saved by two amazing matches. I can even up that to a B minus because those two amazing matches are two of the greatest matches in the history of pro wrestling. So basically, like four guys get an A plus, and everything else sucks. <laughs> That's just the best way to explain explain WrestleMania 10. I want to thank you on behalf of the fourth wall fam to tuning in to the kickoff of our content marathon this WrestleMania week. Um, I'm going to quick give you the schedule so you know what else to listen for this week because you're going to hear stuff from me, from Smarky, from Bones, and the three of us together. Tomorrow, you're going to get Smarky's single run takeover New York prediction show. On April 3rd, you're going to get another Kayfabe Classics. This time, I'll be joined with Bones for the whole show, not just as a producer. And we're going to talk about the glory that was WrestleMania 20, the complete opposite of WrestleMania 10, maybe one of the greatest WrestleManias ever. On April 4th, it's the RWA Gala, and it's going to feature a war room debate live on twitch.tv backslash RWA world. That starts at 730 Bones and Smarky will be there. I'm going to have to sit this one out. And the whole WrestleAddict Radio family is going to be there. So make sure you check check in on that and say hello to everybody. And, well, see what they're going to debate about. I can't wait to see what they debate about. I can't wait to see what I'm going to miss. <laughs> it would have gotten really obnoxious. I was going to start yelling at people. It's probably a good thing. Anyway, <laughs> April 5th, Smarky's going to hit you with another singles run. It's going to be the TakeOver New York post show. Takeover will have happened that night. April 6th, we give you Fourth Wall episode number 20, the OG podcast. It's the WrestleMania prediction show. All three of us are going to be here. So make sure you're you're available and you're listening and you're tuned in and you got your WrestleMania game face on and you're going to take that WrestleMania game face. You're going to show up the next night at the parking lot at MetLife Stadium as we do the Fourth Wall WrestleMania tailgate. It's going to be live on Twitter at Fourth Wallcast. Stay tuned. We'll be releasing the lot information this week as we get more information from MetLife Stadium. After WrestleMania is done and you're coming down from the high, that is the best professional wrestling show of the year. You need to tune in the Monday morning aftermath on April 8th because we're not going to be able to record on Sunday night. I just know we're not. We're going to fucking WrestleMania, baby. So... Make sure you you make sure you're there for that. On behalf of the fourth wall fam, I need to thank my producer, JC Bones, back there twiddling the knobs for me today. And I am your good doctor, Doc Haas, signing off. K Fabe Classics. 
See you soon, fam. Woo!